pull out the Bible and read and conclude with this is the word of the Lord and you would say something along the lines of thanks be to God. But today we're going we're gonna to hold that off for just a second. Um, in part because last week, Jim having spent some time taking us through Isaiah and Jeremiah, today is our last week in the Old Testament um, for this series which means we have a lot of ground to cover, which means as we read 2 Chronicles 36, which is kind of this massive summary chapter of the Old Testament, it needs to have a little bit of a contextual buildup. And so uh, we'll get there in just a second, but you can go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles 36 if you'd like to follow along. The second thing I need to just make you aware of is that though today is October 15th, this whole morning is going to feel a little bit like the night before Christmas. Uh, yep, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> that's not my fault. We're just at the end of the Old Testament. And next week, we're going to, we're going to, the, the Messiah will have come. Next week, I believe Drew Moss is going to be sharing about Jesus' ministry. And so we'll be, um, we'll be moving from the Old Testament into the New. And so this, even the music that we've chosen for today, even the way that we're going to celebrate communion feels very anticipatory. It feels very Advent-y. feels very night before Christmas. Um, and with that, we're going to be able to ask some questions that the people of Israel had to ask themselves, and then I think we can continue to ask them even though we're well beyond the cross. But before we get there, I feel like it's important. We're, we're, we're pulling this one story through, this singular thread through the story, and, and um, sorry, not sorry, we need to go over how it begins again. So God creates, and he creates a spectacular creation. Creation's good, 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 and then very good. Then humanity comes along. And then humanity rebels against him. But God in his grace and in his mercy, first time he spills blood to cover sin is actually in the garden as he makes garments to cover their shame. But then we see God's faithfulness to deal with that sin in judgment, born out of his own righteousness. But judgment that promises redemption and salvation with images like doves and rainbows. And then we see God establish a paradigm by which he will save people from their sins and do so in a substitutionary fashion. We see that in Genesis 22 with Abraham and the near sacrifice of Isaac. And then we see God choose his people as he delivers them from their bondage. Innocent saves them. And then he gives them a framework through which they can, they can represent him to the rest of the world. That's the law. And then they ask for a king, and we are told that that is, that is a, a sinful request because it is, in effect, a rejection of God's kingship over the nation. Nevertheless, he concedes the point. He gives them the king. In fact, in the law that had been given much earlier, he already made provisions for when you do something as dumb as ask for a king, this is what that king should be like. And in his kindness, he gives them a king. And in his kindness, he dwells. Among his people, his presence is in the tabernacle and then in the temple in a very special and unique way. But the people still rebel. And in his kindness, he promises to, to give them new hearts on which will be written a, a new law, a deeper law. And then he says, judgment will come, but so will redemption, so will restoration, so will return. And then that brings us to the end of the Old Testament. 
And it's, it just happens like this. The promises begin to unfold. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Prophesying during that time would be guys like Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Obadiah. But it's not as though it's just they've been conquered. Now they're going to be removed. They're going to be deported, many of them. The deportations actually began about 20 years before this happened. So if the north falls in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians, the south falls in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians. And prior to the full-on destruction of Jerusalem, the best of the best, the cream of the crop in Israel, guys like Daniel, are deported. And they are, they are tasked with um, building up the Babylonian society because they're, they're brilliant. They're useful. Others weren't so lucky by the time the Babylonians actually breached the city walls. And you weren't so brilliant and you weren't so useful, so you're not coming with us. And many died. But after 70 years, God continues to work. And he raises up a new king a new superpower, King Cyrus, who says, you're going home. And you have prophets like Joel and Haggai and Zechariah that are, that are speaking to the nation in this time, this, this transition time, where we're no longer in Babylon, at least most of us aren't. Many of us never made it there in the first place. And now we have to rebuild. And so that's what we're going to do. We need to build that temple. Our temple was destroyed. We need, to, we need to rebuild the city walls. Malachi would be one of your final writing prophets in the Old Testament. Of course, Ezra and Nehemiah oversee much of the infrastructure and the rebuilding of the city and the temple. But this is the story. And then you have to imagine that your run-of-the-mill Jerusalemite is like, now what? We're home. We don't have a king. We're still technically under the rule of a foreign power. We're paying through the nose in taxes to support their empire. We have a new temple, but it's a shadow of what Solomon's was. We have city walls, virtually no ability to defend ourselves. Now what? This is the promised restoration that the prophets spoke of? This is it? So here's the story in 2 Chronicles 36. There's going to be a number of names that just sound like we're barely changing a few letters, but that's the way that they named their kings. But you're just going to see this, this devolving of society as the Old Testament comes to a close. Chronologically, 2 Chronicles 36, it wouldn't be the last Old Testament book in your Bible, but chronologically, this particular chapter kind of puts the Old Testament to bed. And then people are left, now what? But it begins in verse 1. Then the common people took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Now, if you were a Hebrew person, and you, you read that, it would be, you, would, you, you would have Josiah in like the pantheon of Washington and Lincoln. Like this is a great king, a reforming king, a king that in some sense brought restored righteousness to the nation. And then you just 
see the fall. You just see things kind of go over the cliff. With Josiah, we're trending up, but then the promises that Jeremiah foretold are about to come to bear on the nation. So Jehoaz, Josiah's son, was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. The king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and fined the land 7,500 pounds of silver and 75 pounds of gold. Then King Necho of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah in Jerusalem and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim would have been the king ruling when um, Habakkuk was prophesying the soon coming destruction and when he literally resigned himself to just sitting on the city wall, whether that's metaphor or reality, it doesn't quite matter. He just said, our fate is sealed. Look toward the horizon. At some point, we'll see the Babylonian army come across and then we're done. And he, he spoke these things in the age of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Now King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked him and bound him in bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Also Nebuchadnezzar took some of the articles of the Lord's temple to Babylon and put them in his temple in Babylon. Great. Nebuchadnezzar has deposed Jerusalem's king. And as a powerful king himself, he'll install whoever he wants to serve as a puppet king from this point forward. But worse than that, he's defiled the temple. He's plundered it. Not completely, that's coming. But he's just gone into the most sacred place on earth and said, things that had been consecrated to God, that's mine now. I'm taking that home. The rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim, the detestable actions he committed, and what was found against him are written in the book of Israel's kings. His son Jehoiakim became king in his place. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. They're getting younger and younger, and that's going to correspond to them getting worse and worse. (laughs) He reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. In the spring, Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, along with the valuable articles of the Lord's temple. Then he made Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Another king deposed, the temple yet again plundered by a foreign army. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah at the Lord's command. That prophet Jeremiah. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God. He became obstinate and hardened his heart against returning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leaders of the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful deeds, imitating all the detestable practices of the nations and they defiled the Lord's temple that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So to this point, we've had two kings deposed, and Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple. 
But it gets worse, the spiral continues, because now you have the leaders of Israel's priests acting just like the nations and defiling God's holy sanctuary. Merry Christmas is how the Old Testament ends. But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers. That would be the prophets. Sending them time and time again. For he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. That is the most shocking part of this story thus far. You see the rabid depravity taking place. And God keeps sending his prophets, keeps sending his messengers, because he has compassion on his people and on the house that had been built to his name. He is long-suffering, if there ever was one. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that would be the Babylonians, who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned all its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. And in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. Yahweh, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may Yahweh his God be with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So 2 Chronicles chapter 36 is an apt summary of what happens after the prophets speak their messages to an obstinate and rebellious people. And then we just get this destroyed walls, burned temple. Destroyed, deported. They've returned, and then they rebuild, and then now we just wait. For how long? I don't know, maybe four, five hundred years? We wait. And that might be one of the most prescribed actions in the Bible, is to just wait Israel had to wait for all the prophecies that foretold their doom and destruction to come true. And at some point, you know, they're just sitting around the campfire saying, you know, Grandpa keeps saying all that crazy stuff that's going to happen. Is he just old and crazy now? But then it finally happened. They're like, oh, okay, 
prophets were right. Then in Babylon, they're sitting around the campfires. I know some prophet somewhere, maybe a guy named Isaiah, talked about that this would not be the end of us. Now they just have to wait. Now we have hindsight, of course, but I still think waiting might be the name of the game for us because we're talking about, we're building up to the first advent of God in flesh, Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we'll begin to celebrate and observe Advent more formally as we prepare for Christmas. But there's always a second Advent that we await. We're always looking for the, the, the second coming, the return of God in flesh. And so, though we know the cross and the grave give us great power as members of his church, and life and power over sin and death, well, we're still waiting. So how do we wait well? Last week as a staff, we had an opportunity to get, to get away for a few days, and uh, we do two retreats a year. We do one in the spring where we plan out uh, basically a year's worth of programming and ministry type things as best as we're able to forecast them. And then in, in the fall, we do more of a spiritual formation type retreat. This last week, uh, Scott Irwin took us through this very short little book by a guy named Henry Nowen called Out of Solitude. Three chapters long, shortest book you'll ever read. That's Nowen's way. <laughs> um, we read it, so we, we would read a chapter and then discuss, and read a chapter and discuss. The first chapter talks about how it's from our, our retreat, it's from our solitude, it's from our solitude, particularly with the Lord, that we are been, then able to re-engage and be fully present. In order to be really there with others, we need time where we're just kind of with God. We retreat in order to go. And, I, and we talked about that, and I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's even tangible. I can talk about the value of, of retreating in solitude with God and then the, the life that springs from that whenever I re-engage with others. So I, 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 can, I can explain that to people. I can even experience it to some degree myself. Chapter two was all about how do we extend care and compassion he didn't actually use these words in the chapter, but he could have asked the question, how do we weep with those who weep? And it was very helpful. It led to some really good discussion. And it's very tangible. I can sit with someone and, and, and cry with them. There are many people in this church that are hurting for a, a myriad of reasons, and, and I, I can point to actual examples where spending time with others in their pain is care and compassion. The third chapter is one of the best things we can do to care for people is to constantly keep the return of the Lord at the forefront of our minds and at the forefront of our conversations. In other words, one of the best things we can do for others is to instill hope in them and to uh, model it for them. And in my discussion group, I said, that one's the hardest for me. I know how to go be by myself so that I can be better when I'm with you. And I know how to sit shoulder to shoulder and cry with you. I have a harder time convincing you to hope in something that I can't point to today. How do we instill hope? Where is hope to be found? <laughs> um, I think in the end, hope 
can be found in the very same place where God's judgment is found, where God's salvation is found, where his glory is found, where his faithfulness is found. And for us, that's in his words. It's in his words. Um, God's word governs the structure of the scriptures. And he has an unbelievable track record for not getting things wrong. Like he's batting a thousand. Our our Bibles are arranged in a certain way, particularly the Old Testament, where we begin in Genesis and we end in Malachi. And, and, you know, we have this big historical section and then we have the prophets. And and they're, they're kind of arranged by size of book more so than chronology. But that's not how our Bibles have always been arranged. Particularly the Hebrew Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament, they've more conventionally been arranged into three sections. Into the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, prophets, and writings. And it's telling how each of those sections begins with this incredible reminder that all of this happens under the purview and under the power and under the prerogative of whatever God says goes. So the law begins with Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law. That section begins with, in the beginning. This part we know very well. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. We should really probably read that if we do our, like, our Hebrew idiom studies. And it says the, worth, the, the earth was volatile and chaotic. It had no structure or order to it. And darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over this chaos and this disorder. And to bring order out of chaos, to bring creativity out of nonsense, God spoke. And it just happens. Let there be. He speaks things into creation. From the very first lines in our Bible, God's words are setting the tone for everything else. But then the prophets come along. Now, for you and I, we usually think of prophets Isaiah, Daniel. The prophets, as the, the, book of the, as the Old Testament was originally arranged, the prophets actually began with the book of Joshua. And if you know Joshua's story, he is running around with the Israelites and Moses in the wilderness, and then he is tasked with leading the nation. Moses dies on the side of a mountain, and it's Joshua's turn to lead the people across the Jordan and to take the Holy Land. And what is Joshua tasked with doing so as to achieve what God has called him to do here? God says in Joshua 1, verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. And above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And you have to imagine, as they are strapping on their armor and about to cross the Jordan, you've got some Israelites saying, really? 
No, like, battle tactics? Like, memorize the law? Love it? Talk about it all the time? That's what we need to do to be successful? In other words, God is saying, you will do everything by depending on me and hanging on my words and my directive commands. And when I promise, that promise is sure. The writings, so we have the law, we have the prophets, we have the writings. The writings begin with the book of Psalms. And one of the most beautiful of the Psalms is the first one. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. When this psalm was written, Joshua 1 had to be in mind. Still, this book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You're to meditate on it day and night, so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. Delight in the Lord's instruction and meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1, verse 3. He, whoever does this, he, remember like Joshua, he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. From beginning to end, the entirety of the Old Testament sits on the foundation of what did God say? He said, let there be light. He said, do what I have commanded you to do, and you will prosper. Now, this is not like self-serving religious algebra. Do this, and if this, then this. However, God says, and then it happens. And I had to walk back my statement when we were reading Nowen's book together, when I said, I don't know how to tangibly give someone hope. I don't know how to tangibly demonstrate it. I spoke too soon. When I look through the evidence here, this is how I demonstrate hope. And it's not blind faith, it's not a leap in the dark. From beginning to end, God has called his shot, and whatever he says will be, will be. Whatever he says will happen, happens. And so when I am to hold in front of someone who needs care and compassion, who is in a, a moment of deep pain, the hope of Christ's return, and I glibly say, I don't know how to help you hope in this, what I should do is I should say, all but like the last six pages of this book have come true. It would be an act of extreme lunacy to assume that all of a sudden God's gonna not get it done. He said, I'll free my people from Egypt, and he did. He said, I will deal with their sin, and he did. He said, I will write it on their hearts, and he has. He said, I will destroy this nation unless you repent, and they didn't, so he did. And he said, I will send you back. And like, if you read Daniel, Daniel is so fun because God literally raises up kingdoms and smashes them down. Raises up kings and smashes them down. He is playing geopolitics like, like checkers. And he does what he says he'll do. And then all of a sudden, some dude named Cyrus feels the need to 
bankrupt himself of an entire labor force so that you guys can go build a little church building? Maybe God's word is just powerful and unbelievably reliable. Because he said he would send a servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, and he sent one who can multiply fishes and loaves. He said that servant would be crushed for our iniquities, and he was crucified on a Roman cross. He said to David that my servant will not experience decay and that tomb was empty. All he does is call his shot over and over and over and over again. And with 100% reliability, it comes true. So if I ever say something so dumb as I don't know how to give people hope, you can just talk to Eli and turn this mic off because that's foolishness. I spoke too soon. When Nowen said, we need to live in light and in anticipation of Christ's return. And we need to offer ministry and care and compassion in light of that. And as a way of lifting others out of the muck and the mire. That, that's totally doable. Because again, if we're committed to the words of God... And if we can discover them in this book, then I think it's, it's almost only hope because God has only been faithful to his word. He promised that he would destroy the nation and that he would deport them and punish them and judge them, and he did. And he promised that it would be short-lived, and it was. And he promised that he would again come to Israel, and he did. You know, I think while they're sitting there in captivity, the Old Testament's coming to a close. There's certainly a hope that a Messiah will one day come, but no concept of when that might be. You have to imagine that people are sitting in Babylon recalling texts like Isaiah 40 to one another. Now, if you're a, an Old Testament Israelite, Isaiah 40 means a lot. But for those of us on that side of the cross, Isaiah 40 means a lot. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then here's words. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Can you imagine hearing those words in a slave labor camp in Babylon? Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In the famous section, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of Yahweh in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. If you were in Babylon as an Israelite in bondage, you would hear this as we are physically separated from our homeland by a desert. So I'd love a straight highway for God to arrive through the desert. I would love every valley to be lifted up and every mountain and hill to be leveled. I would love for the uneven ground to become smooth and the rough places plain because I, like, I need the path back to what it should be to be smoothed out by some divine intervention because the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I mean, you could just be there in Babylon. This is what I need. And, and they got that. 
But they didn't realize that it pointed to something even bigger than that. Like the Israelites in Egypt who needed to be redeemed from their bondage, they had no concept of how deep that bondage actually was. And like captives in Babylon who needed to yet again be redeemed from their bondage, God did in fact do that, but they had no idea how deep their bondage was until the Roman cross shows up. And you see the depth of the saving we needed and God's faithfulness to his word to provide that. Isaiah 40 continues in verse six. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. How can I provide hope for those who desperately need it? I can point them to the one whose words have never failed, whose words remain forever. Later on in chapter 55, Isaiah will again offer some encouragement to people who hadn't yet been disciplined to such a degree. Isaiah is prior to the fall, but Isaiah would certainly have been leaned on after the fall of Jerusalem. And I I think that it meant so much to them, and and again, I, I read it from that side of the church building, and it means so much to us now. Isaiah 55, verse six says, seek the Lord while he may be found and call to him when he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Like, can you read this with Jesus in mind? Like, just picture Jesus as we read this. So he may have compassion on us and to our God, for he will freely forgive. And then look how Isaiah reminds us that God transcends all other things and his plans are sure and his words are perfect. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. For this is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty. But it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. His track record is perfect. It's always done what God wants it to do. His word has always been sure. It's always been proven true. And I think the real reason why I had to grapple with how difficult it is to instill hope in others is because I don't like how slow that process can be. I'm something of an impatient person. And so I'd like to hurry up and fix the problem so we can move on. But to hold out hope for people in true, deep pain is not something that's quick. And there was one little line in Noun's chapter that caught me. 
says this. He says, the mother of expectation is patience. I get how we should be expecting the Messiah, expecting the Messiah. We really need the Messiah to come. I hope that servant song is really true and that God really does, in fact, send that servant, the Messiah, patient, patient, patient. He's here. We have another advent we're waiting on. We have the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so if that's what we put our hope in, then in our expectation, we must be patient. And so we wait. I thought about actually beginning this message with saying, this is going to have zero practical application. So, sorry. I can literally only prescribe to you, wait. Which actually is rather practical. We should wait patiently on the Lord. When things are complicated, when things are tough, I, I did this whole first service with a man sitting right here whose father just passed away a few days ago and I could just see the pain of kind of dealing with that here in public and it's like there's no way to accelerate the, the hope, like the healing that hope can provide right there. I can hold out the hope and then we patiently wait for it to do what it does, which is prove itself true over time. So like Israel, we too wait for Yahweh's advent and we do so trusting that God's care and provision will come because he is perfectly faithful to his word and we hold out the hope of the gospel to a lost and broken world because we trust that God will deliver us from our sin and sustain us in the turmoil that comes and living in a broken and fallen world because God is perfectly faithful to his word and he promised he would do those things. So, here's what we're gonna do for communion. The band is gonna play a song over you and I, and I, I would encourage you to, to remain seated and let them, let them minister to you with these words. This is, this is a Christmas song. I know it's October, I'm sorry. This is a Christmas song, but we're at the end of the Old Testament, so Christmas is here in terms of the sermon series. This song has some very powerful lyrics, and you could almost ask, is this song being sung from Israel's perspective or ours? And I think it's just yes. So I would encourage you to even hold the elements in your hand and maybe even listen with your eyes closed and let these words minister to you and remind you of God's faithfulness to his word. And then once they're done, we will share in this meal together.
tangible expressions of hope when you share this meal with your brothers and sisters every week. This is hope. It is hope and it is encouragement for us and even Paul will say that it is a loud ringing message to a broken world that this is everything we need. So with great hope and expectation we share body given for us and the blood poured out for our sins. <laughs> 